Welcome to Dark Adaptation, and thank you for joining our monthly segment, Missing, Murdered, Mysterious, where we highlight unsolved cases of missing people, homicides, and mysterious deaths with a focus on BIPOC in North America. Today's case focuses on a missing person named Edmund Tillman. And the family is still waiting for some answers. We've learned a Canadian woman is missing. Family says they have done all that was in their hands to find their loved one. I just want him to make it home to us. Pleading for help from the public to find their family member. The car was empty, the motor still running. The driver's side door was open. Edmund Tillman, known as Eddie by those close to him, was born on January 19, 1991. So in 2005, when our story takes place, he was 14 years old. Eddie lived in Brooklyn, New York, in one of the apartments in the Marcy Projects with his mother and his three sisters. Eddie was close to his sisters and his mother, Alelia Newsom. Alelia doted on Eddie and loved him dearly, which is why in June 2005, when Eddie came out to her as gay, she accepted him with open arms. Eddie was her only son and she loved him. It would take a lot more than coming out as gay to end that love. And it wasn't just Alelia that accepted him. According to other people who knew Eddie, the people in his life as a whole were accepting of his sexuality. Alelia accepted her son for who he was, but it was around the same time he came out as gay that she noticed some uncharacteristic behavioral changes in Eddie. For example, he started coming home later and later, and he began having trouble in school. These troubles in school led him to have to attend summer school in Manhattan. Wednesday, August 10th, 2005, started like many other weekdays that summer. Alelia pulled up to the school on Essex Street in Manhattan's Lower East Side, where Eddie was taking summer classes, and before he got out of the car, she gave him some money for lunch. Then she watched as her 14-year-old son walked into the school, where he was going to take a test that would determine if he would have to remain in the 7th grade, or if he could advance to the 8th grade. This was the last time Alelia saw her son. And the last time Eddie was seen was that evening at roughly 7 p.m. when he had gone to a public swimming pool with friends at Hamilton Fish Park. Located on East Houston Street and Pitt Street, which is only six blocks away from the school he was attending. As always, maps are available on our Instagram at Dark Adaptation Podcast. Alelia and his sisters were worried, but they likely assumed he was out for the night and would return the next day. After all, Eddie had been having behavioral problems lately, so he might have disobeyed his curfew again. By August 12th, there was no sign of Eddie, so he was reported missing. Police believed he left of his own volition, theorizing he was likely a runaway who was worried that his family wouldn't accept him since he recently came out as gay. But Alelia and the rest of the family did not believe this was the case because they had all been accepting of Eddie's sexuality. Plus, Eddie hadn't taken any personal belongings with him. All he had with him was whatever he had taken to school that day. Least surprising of all, Alelia felt the police were not taking Eddie's disappearance very seriously. In fact, Alelia had been open about how she believes police never really searched for her son. And because of that, she has dealt with a lot of frustration and pain. The police took a missing persons report, but Alelia never heard from the 79th precinct she reported to. She said, quote, I ended up having to go there. I sat there crying my heart out, telling my story. 
all they were doing was waiting for those seven days so they could send it off, unquote. Those seven days refers to the missing persons report being sent to the citywide missing persons squad in Manhattan. So during those seven days, where vital tips and information can be learned and followed up on, Alelia says police at the 79th precinct weren't doing anything to investigate or move the case forward. They were sitting back, waiting until they were able to send it off to the missing person squad. But even after it was sent off, the issues continued. Alelia said she also had problems with the missing person squad. Detectives there told her Eddie was a runaway and she couldn't do anything about it. She just had to wait for him to return home. That did not sit well with Alelia. She wasn't going to sit back and do nothing like the agencies around her. So Alelia was left looking for her son on her own, taking the investigation into her own hands. After Eddie vanished, she started traveling to the West Village in Manhattan, where she learned her son would hang out. She tracked down Eddie's friends, and she talked to them to see what they knew. This is when she learned that Eddie was talking to older men online, up until his computer broke down in July. And he even appeared to have had an 18-year-old boyfriend in the months leading up to his disappearance. But this hasn't been confirmed. Alelia had also learned that Eddie sent photos of some of these men to a friend of his who forwarded them to her after her son went missing. Learning these details about her son's life only added to her worry. In between talking to friends and family about Eddie, Alelia searched for her son everywhere. She would often sleep in her car near Manhattan Parks, keeping an eye out for Eddie and talking to the locals. Despite her frustration with law enforcement and the detectives at the missing person squad, she stayed in communication with them, turning over all information she learned and the contact details for the people she talked to, hoping detectives could pursue things further. She called the squad every day at first, but she gave up on that pretty quickly, saying, quote, it feels like they just tell me anything to get me off the phone, unquote. On October 4th, 2005, nearly two months since her son's disappearance, she filed the complaint with the Civilian Complaint Review Board, which oversees charges of police misconduct, alleging the officers in the squad, Sergeant Francesco Poluzotto, and two detectives, Eric Wuss and Miguel Rodriguez, had not done their job, and the complaint was referred to the Office of the Chief of Department. About the complaint, Detective Rodriguez had defended his squad's performance, saying, quote, I've been in this unit for about five years. Usually each detective works his own case. This is one of the cases where I would say about 90% of the detectives have been involved in. We've done everything possible, but this kid just doesn't want to come home. Her son has been seen in the West Village, but he is consciously choosing to not return home, unquote. This information comes from eyewitnesses. When talking about one eyewitness, Alelia said, quote, one of the little boys said they saw Eddie on a train and he was with an older man. He said he said to Eddie, Eddie, why don't you go home? And he said he wasn't ready to go home yet, unquote. Rodriguez also said it was possible that Eddie left New York City entirely and his unit has reached out to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and to police in San Francisco. Now, I assume police assumed he would have gone to San Francisco because Eddie had recently come out as gay and San Francisco has always had a huge gay scene and has actually been described as, quote, the original gay friendly city. If there were any tips or sightings about Eddie's presence in San Francisco, they weren't widely reported on. 
Lieutenant Chris Zimmerman, the commanding officer of the squad, said his officers had subpoenaed Eddie's phone records and searched in the West Village roughly 10 times. It was possible that Eddie is living with, quote, people he knows, people he associates with, unquote. So basically, police said they investigated what they could. Alilia says they weren't really looking. It's a, she said, they said situation that doesn't appear to have gone anywhere helpful. But regardless, Eddie was still missing. And sadly, to this day, he remains missing. And his case has not progressed much at all. Over the years, there's been sightings of Eddie. We know he's allegedly been spotted in Manhattan's West Village in the early days of his disappearance. And then throughout the years, he's allegedly been seen randomly around New York City. In 2017, a longtime family friend contacted Alilia, saying he saw Eddie in Greenwich Village dressed as a girl. About this, Eddie's sister Chiara said, quote, I just feel like my family is ready for him to come back. Even if he is dressed as a girl, I'm ready for him to be my best friend and go out with me as a girl, unquote. No one knows if Eddie transitioned to being a woman and NYPD have never confirmed this idea. But Detective McDonough said, quote, we have heard that in the past that he did cross dress. It's never been verified, unquote. To add to the family's unease about their missing son and brother, shortly after Eddie's disappearance, they started receiving weird phone calls. When Alelia or his sisters would answer the phone, the caller wouldn't speak, but they wouldn't hang up either. Alelia said she was hopeful it was Eddie and for whatever reason he couldn't speak, so she would do all the talking until the line went dead. As the years went on, the phone calls dwindled, but Eddie's sister, Jalissa, said her family has received the mysterious phone calls on and off over the years. Quote, strangely, around holidays and when my dad passed away and my grandmother passed away. Unquote. Jalissa also said someone named Stephanie often called the family from the Lower East Side. And about this, she said, quote, there's just so many unanswered questions. How did they get the number? How do you call randomly? I want to believe it's him kind of checking up on us in a disguise, unquote. It's also a possibility that Eddie isn't calling in a disguise, but that he has transitioned. And Stephanie is her new name, but that's purely speculation. And again, a transition has never been confirmed. The problem with this idea is why would Eddie go to the effort to call his family and essentially harass them with strange phone calls for over 18 years? If it's true that he ran away because he was struggling with his sexual identity or worried his family didn't truly accept him, that was a long time ago. He was only 14 years old when dealing with heavy topics like one's own sexuality can be very difficult for a teenager, but he's likely matured since then. It was also 2005 when times were different. Homophobia and transphobia were far more prevalent. In today's climate, there's still a lot of issues, but for the most part, people are more open and accepting. So it seems strange that if he were alive and well, he would not officially contact his family, especially if he was still in New York City. Plus, it's very clear that his mom and sisters have always been accepting of his sexuality and the fact that it's possible he has transitioned. So any hesitation or worry he might have had in the past shouldn't really be a problem anymore. With that being said, my next point brings us into a more stark reality and one the family really hopes is not the case. They are remaining optimistic that Eddie will come home one day, but sadly, it seems it's far more likely that a young, gay, black teenager 
was targeted by a predator. Maybe someone he met online or this mysterious 18-year-old boyfriend he allegedly had. And this predator preyed on the vulnerabilities of an underaged boy who was figuring out his identity, struggling in school, and likely looking for a place to fit in. Again, his family is remaining hopeful that he's alive and will come home, but it has been over 18 years since Eddie was officially seen or heard from. Frustratingly, this is where the case remains, with a loving family that misses their son and brother left in limbo hoping Eddie returns home to them. There are many questions that surround Eddie's disappearance. Did he truly run away? Was he preyed upon by an online predator or an opportunist in the streets of Manhattan? If it was a predator he met online, who is this man? Or men, if it's true he was talking to multiple people. Have these men ever been identified and investigated? Did the police really search for Eddie as diligently as they say they did? After all, they said he was a runaway they couldn't force to return home. So would they actually expend valuable resources on a kid they say is choosing to be missing? Plus, he was only 14. He was a minor. How can you not force him to go home? These are all vital questions, questions I'm sure the family thinks about every day while they pray for answers. Alelia Newsom has not moved from her Brooklyn apartment in hopes her son will return to the only home he's ever known. She said, quote, I just want him to make it home to us. I just pray and beg every day. I don't care if he's dressed as a woman. I love my son for who he is. Edmund Eddie Newsom is a black male with a medium complexion, brown hair and brown eyes. He has the following distinctive physical features. A flat face, a mole on his left eyebrow, a birthmark on the left side of his abdomen. He has a preauricular sinus, which is a hole above the ear canal on each ear, which looks like a piercing. He is pigeon-toed and he's right-handed. When he was last seen, he was five foot three with a medium build and weighing approximately 145 pounds. He was wearing a matching outfit, which included a white t-shirt, blue denim shorts, blue and white Nike sneakers, and he was wearing a small gold hoop earring in his left ear. He goes by either Eddie or Deshaun, and today he would be 32 years old, turning 33 in a couple of months. If you have any information about the disappearance of Eddie Tillman, who has been missing from Manhattan's Lower East Side in New York City since August 10th, 2005, please contact the New York Police Department Missing Persons Squad at 212-694-7781. Eddie's case remains unsolved, but his family continues to fight for answers in a case where many questions linger about their missing son and brother. Thank you for listening to this episode of Missing Murdered Mysterious. Please share this episode so we can continue spreading Eddie Tillman's story, and hopefully, one day, we can help bring answers to his loved ones. I call it the missing white woman search syndrome. <laughs> if there's a missing white woman, we're going to cover that every day. Black kids stay on the news cycle for about a day, maybe, and then they fall off the news cycle. 
an epidemic of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. Indigenous women face a murder rate six times the national average. 